Hello, welcome back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom is out. I'm your host for the day, Dave Schrader, along with me. Andy Brant Bernard. Cassie Schrader. When we return, Lawrence O'Donnell Jr. will be joining us in uh, the next segment, promoting his book, Deadly Force. How a badge became a license to kill. That's next on the Tom Bernard Show. Walzer Automotive is a Minnesota family-owned business. It started in the 50s. It's grown by leaps and bounds, especially in the past few years, and they now have 23 dealerships spread across two states. The Walzer way includes upfront, no-haggle pricing on every single new and used vehicle they sell. If you change your mind, no problem. Check out Walzer's three-day return and 30-day exchange policy. I'm a customer, my family are customers, and many of my friends have bought cars from them. The Walzer way is really different, and I know you'll be pleasantly surprised. For great deals on new or used Acura, Audi, Buick, BMW, Chevrolet, Chrysler, Dodge, GMC, Honda, Hyundai, Jaguar, Jeep, Land Rover, Lexus, Mazda, Mercedes, Mini, Nissan, Porsche, Ram, Subaru, or Toyota, go to walzer.com, Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? At, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Welcome back to the show. This is the Tom Bernard Show. I'm your host, Dave Schrader. Joining us now, Lawrence O'Donnell is the host of The Last Word on MSNBC, formerly an Emmy Award-winning executive producer and writer for The West Wing. O'Donnell also served as senior advisor to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan and was chief of staff for two Senate committees. O'Donnell is the New York Times bestselling author of Playing With Fire, the 1968 election, and the transformation of American politics and deadly force, a police shooting, and my family's search for the truth. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere. He's here to talk about his new book, Deadly Force, How a Badge Became a License to Kill. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. It's great to have you join us. Uh, talk to me a little bit about this case. Why, why this story? What was important about this story to bring it out? Well, you know, I, the first edition of this book I wrote in the 1980s, and it was the first book about the problems associated with police use of deadly force. And I just want to grant at the outset of this conversation that, in fact, most police use of deadly force is justified uh, and is a clear situation in which uh, the police officer or someone else's life is threatened and they use deadly force, uh, usually with their firearms, in, in a way that's completely justifiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is this minority of cases that are highly questionable uh, that deserve the kind of attention that they were never getting uh, until I first uh, wrote about it in the 1980s. And even then, uh, no one was really paying much attention to it. I wrote about it in the New York Times op-ed. I wrote about it in this in the book, uh, Deadly Force. Uh, and then four years ago, when Michael Brown was killed in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, suddenly there was an attention on this that we had never had before. And the reason I, I brought my book out again in paperback this time with a new introduction and a new epilogue <clears throat> is, to, is to say to people, uh, this is not a new problem, that every single thing we're seeing in these cases, whether it be 
uh, what happened to Michael Brown or Laquan McDonald in uh, Chicago, where the officer was just found guilty of second-degree murder. Uh, every single element of those cases is something that has been with us forever, but the news media has not been paying attention to it. Uh, and and there's, there's both comfort and discomfort in that, uh, knowing that... Uh, that we're not suddenly in some new outbreak of the shooting of unarmed black men by police officers. Mm-hmm. There's not some strange thing that happened that twisted us into suddenly doing this. Uh, the, the truth of it is that this has been happening uh, for as long as, as we have records of police shooting. This has been happening. Uh, it predates the 1970s when I first started studying it. And, um, but, but, uh, there have been some improvements, uh, but the story is is basically moving in the same direction that it has that it has always been, and uh, and and finally we do have attention to it. And so uh, the story that I tell in my book is a story of a shooting in Boston, and it's a very personal story because my father, who was a Boston cop. Uh, then became a lawyer by going to law school nights. He took on this case against his own police department uh, and won and proved that this young black man who was unarmed and was shot in the back in the back of the head by Boston police officers uh, was unjustifiably killed, and he did that in a federal court civil rights case. Uh, And that was the first of its kind uh, in the country where anyone had ever won a case like that uh, in 1979 in Boston. And so... Um, the story that's told in this book is uh, a very personal story of two families coming together, a black family that suffered this loss of their uh, husband and father, and then this white O'Donnell family, including me, who joined the team of working on this case. And it, and it shows you the kind of crusade that was necessary to get at the truth in that case. And that's that's a version of what we saw in Chicago uh, with Laquan McDonald. It took a crusade and a massive protest crusade to get that police video released that showed that the police story was completely false and that Laquan McDonald was another unarmed black man who posed no threat to anyone who was then shot, in this case, shot 16 times by a police officer. What are we finding, Lawrence, in these cases? Is it a clear case of racism? Is it a clear case of of um, too much power given to the wrong people? Or are mistakes honestly made? Jumpy people concerned about a situation or perceiving it to be one thing and it's something else. They maybe get the wrong person, the wrong car, and and open fire and realize that you know what they've done was was not necessarily a sense of malicious intent, but... Maybe and, and I'm not trying to make excuses. I hope you understand that for for police officers that, that do this aspect of it. But I've got to guess that being a, a police officer is a very intense job in the sense that decisions are made split second. Adrenaline's rushing. It's your life or their life in a lot of ways. And even in a situation which you and I from the outside would look at and think, this looks like there's no clear and present danger are they perceiving it a different way legitimately or using the badge to cover violent crimes that they're just doing on their own? So it's, it's everything that you just said, uh, starting with that first uh, element of racism and mm-hmm. all the way through. Some of these shootings uh, do have an element of racism in them that help provoke all those other things that you just described. But let's leave those aside for a moment. Let's mm-hmm. leave the, the racism. Let's take that out of it. Um, right. Or just put it aside, because that's uh, a problem that's been with America uh, since its founding. Uh, it's not going away soon. Um, there's nothing you can put in a police rule book or in police training to eliminate that from someone who feels that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Uh, in a way, uh, that, that is a real factor in all of this, and it is the most difficult one to deal with. Let's talk about the ones we can actually deal with, which is what you were describing after you got past malicious intent, like racism and, and other potential malicious reasons for doing this. And you've, you moved into the area that I call pilot error. You moved into the area of a completely 
human range of mistakes, especially a human range of mistakes that are made under intense pressure and with misinformation. Um, and the misinformation is something that the officer is, in this sense, delivering to his own brain, meaning uh, he believes he, he sees a weapon in the person's hand, which is actually an iPhone. Um, that's very comparable to what happens in cases of pilot error in plane crashes. And in pilot error in plane crashes, uh, it, the, it usually involves the aircraft got into some kind of trouble. And once the aircraft was in trouble uh, of some kind, the pilot made it worse because the pilot was making very difficult decisions under really terrible pressure. Um, and one of the, the reason I, I use the phrase pilot error is if we think about the difference between the way we treat a plane crash and the way we treat killing by police, that's really where the biggest problem is. Because whenever a plane goes down, we immediately have a federal trained team that goes in there every single time to investigate exactly what happened to that airplane, and they every single time figure out what happened to that plane, mm -hmm. airplane. And most of the time, what they have to tell us, most of the time, is pilot error. And the pilot's union does not protest that finding. They don't lie about it. They don't say that's not true. They don't say the pilot did a great job. They accept the finding. They learn from it. They base their training on it. And, and that's what I'd like to see happen in police work. But police unions and police departments have always been incapable of admitting that they have made a mistake. And, and, and look, I mean, and because of their their refusal to ever admit they've made a mistake, you have communities uh, that, are, that are pretty angry about that refusal to make a mistake, and now you have a tension uh, in police departments where they're thinking, well, you know, the protesters are out there. If we admit we made a mistake, the protest is going to get worse. Um, I personally believe that's a misjudgment of what would happen if you, if you admitted that you actually made a mistake. Um, and, and I so I, I think where we have to really concentrate is in the aftermath of these shootings, because no matter how good we make the training, no matter how good the police officers are, no matter how honest they are, uh, no matter how well-intentioned they are, we are going to, at minimum, mm -hmm. have mistakes made and mistakes made under pressure. And if we could at least deal with those honestly, um, and by the way, those should not mean that the police officer goes to prison. There are many uh, aftermaths of this that do not involve uh, necessarily going that far. It does mean a financial judgment where the city you know, pays uh, a settlement to that family that has suffered this loss. It might mean, it definitely should mean the police officer uh, doesn't work in, in police work anymore. You know, we, you shouldn't be allowed more than one of these mistakes in that particular kind of employment. Um, and so, but we could discuss exactly what should be the fair penalty or to, uh, after the fact of making a mistake like this. But I'd love to see the society and, and police departments move to the point where we could address these things as mistakes, when they are mistakes, and what should we do about that. You know, there's such a, a, and I've got some really great friends that are in law enforcement across the United States. And I've asked and spoken to them about what do you think the the worst preconceived notion of your job is. And they said, you know, television in Hollywood has really mucked up law enforcement in the sense that you think that somebody's got a gun, you shoot for the hand, you try to shoot the gun out of the hand, you, you shoot for the leg to kneecap them and drop them. That's not the case when you're in a situation of, of a shooter, an active shooter or, or a, a clear and present danger, you shoot to stop. Somebody's got to go home tonight and it's supposed to be you. And that's the reality of this case. And a lot of people mistakenly think that because our heroes in TV and movie are ace shots and could take out the gun from a, you know, 50 yards with a, a 38 or a, a Beretta, that that's a reality. And that that should be the first and, and most important shot is just trying to disarm, which in reality, that's, that's not the case, right? That's exactly right. I mean, Hollywood is the worst thing that's happened to police work in my lifetime. And look, here's the very simple thing about handguns, which is what police officers have. They are wildly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Most bullets fired by police officers miss 
entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a very small minority of the bullets fired by police officers that actually hit the target that they're aimed at. Uh, and almost all of the cases that we are talking about of uh, police use of deadly force against unarmed black men is at very close range. And because it's at very close range, that's actually why they hit their targets. Um, because handguns are wildly inaccurate, uh, you have to, the most important thing to do with a handgun in any situation, if you're firing it at a human being for a justified reason, is to actually hit that human being and not hit someone beside that human right. being or not hit someone behind that human being or not hit a moving car that's behind that human being because then you might kill the baby in the car instead of the person you're, you're aiming for. And so you have to aim for the biggest part of the body mass. That is what you have to aim for in order for your bullets to have any chance of hitting that body. And because the biggest uh, part of the body mass is also the most lethal, you know, other than the head, um, you have to be absolutely sure you have a good reason and the right reason to be shooting at that body mass. But this nonsense about why didn't you shoot him in the leg or why didn't you shoot him in the arm, that's just childish Hollywood nonsense. I agree, and I I think that's been a big problem. Do you believe that we need more community education across the board, not just in the black community, but in all communities, to teach, starting at at a very young age, how to engage a police officer when when they're called out? You know, I was taught, and I'm a a privileged white kid from the suburbs of uh, Chicago, uh, and I learned that when I got pulled over, I put both hands on top of the wheel, I didn't make any movements until the police officer got to my window and told me what to do. And that was the way I went. And I wasn't, uh, you know, an at-risk person of, of probably being shot. But, but I learned from a very early age because we had police officers as friends and family members. It's always better to do these clear points so that everybody involved in a very high stressful situation knows your intent, sees what you're doing. Don't lean down between the seats. If your wallet has fallen on the floor, you keep your hands on the on the wheel until you can engage the police officer and explain your situation. Should that kind of education be taught across the board for safety, for law enforcement and the people of the communities? Well, you know, one thing to think about when we consider that mm-hmm. is that no one teaches anyone anything like that in France. And no one teaches anyone anything like that um, in the United Kingdom and Great Britain and in most other countries in the world. Because police officers in those countries, including in France, where they do have handguns, uh, understand their role in these interactions generally better than American police officers. And Lawrence, so, uh, can I ask yeah, real quickly? We're up against a break. Been, can you stay on yeah. for another segment with us real quickly? Sure. Stay I, tuned. I, We've I, got more with sure. our guest. No, I, 25. Okay. All right. Lawrence O'Donnell will be right I, back I with I us. Deadly Force, okay. How a Badge Became a License to Kill, next when we return to the Tom Bernard Show. It's Tom here to tell you how easy it was for me to hit my goal of a 92.5-pound weight loss at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth with their weight loss plan. I started in March, and in just over five months, I learned about clean eating, and I now know the foods that work for me and the weight gain trigger foods, very important. I'm now in the reset phase and then on to the Nutramost Forever Maintenance Program, which I'll be talking about more in the weeks to come. Find out how to have success losing weight like I did. Attend the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth free informational dinner on Monday, October 15th, 6.30 p.m. at Jake's in Plymouth. Those extra pounds melt away really fast with this easy program. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth will guarantee that you lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. Nutramost helped me change my life, and they can help you too. Register for the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth dinner on October 15th. Just call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. A program that benefits the homeowner and not the realtor? Do you want a guaranteed offer on your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl, who has some exciting news to share. Hey, Tom, we are super excited to announce our guaranteed offer program. Here's how it works. If you qualify, we will guarantee you an offer on your house within 48 hours, which means you could be closing in three weeks. No staging, no cleaning, no decluttering, and of course, no open houses. This is your hassle-free way to sell your home. If you qualify for the program, you will get a competitive offer in 48 hours, period. Sounds like a stress-free way to sell your home. 
It is, Tom. Some homeowners want the convenience to be able to sell their home quickly without going through the stress of showings, open houses, and so many more headaches, especially if they found their dream home and need to sell fast. You do need to qualify for this program, but that's quick and convenient as well. To see if you qualify for the Guaranteed Offer Program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate, go to chrislindahl.com right now or call 763-401-SOLD. Once again, that's chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K. God, I love this song. I do too. <laughs> Don't know what it is. It's just one of those happy songs. Although it doesn't seem to cue Andy Oki over there. I don't no. see the same look of joy in his eyes as when we nope. play Walk Like an Egyptian. <laughs> None of that. None of that? All right, we're back. Unfortunately, Lawrence O'Donnell Jr., very pressed for time, as you kind of heard his producer cutting in on him as we were uh, heading into commercial break, had to cut. He had another um, uh, another interview, so perhaps we can have him back to visit with the show in the future. The book is called Deadly Force, How a Badge Became a License to Kill. He started to make a point there at the end, Andy, that I, I saw a little bit of uh, issue with, and I'm wondering if you picked up on it as well. When he starts comparing, well, they don't teach this in France, they don't teach it in the U.K., because police officers know better. Well, they're also not facing a general populace where guns are as prevalent as sneakers. And a massive uh, gang culture. Right. I think something like 80% of the murders in this country are committed by, uh, like, people who are in gangs or in, you know, gang territory, at least. Uh, that's really the entire problem. If not for the fact that we had so many gangs just roaming around, most of these crimes wouldn't even happen. So, Right. So I think there's that aspect that, you know, we have to be proactive. You're right. They don't have to teach this in France, and they don't have to teach us in the UK, and they don't have to teach us in Australia, but they're not having the kind of problems we're having. No, the culture's different. And if we, right, and if we can't take guns away because that culture will not stand for it, mm-hmm. right, then maybe it's time we, we do proactively start teaching uh, education in schools of how to deal with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I thought it was great when there was a few of these attacks that came out that you had some of the black celebrities that were coming forth saying, do what the police officer tells you, whether you believe it to be right, wrong, or indifferent. Yeah. If you lay down and put your hands behind your head and let them de-escalate the situation, there's a much less chance of being shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. If someone has a gun trained on you, no matter who they are, that is not the time for, you know, Debate. righteous indignation. To be combative. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I, on the other hand, and I, you know, I had a very interesting experience in college where a cop had mistaken me for somebody else, and I was... I had no shirt on. I'm walking in a pair of jeans. I've got a can of soda in my hand. It was a hot summer night in Winona, Minnesota. And I had cut down the alleyway by my house. And a cop car swung down. Cops jumped out, and they're like, put your hands on the car. And I I was like, why? What's going on? And he said, shut up and do it. And literally, as I looked up at him, Andy, I have the soda in one hand. I go, what do you want me to do with that? Wham! He cracks me in the hand. (laughs) I was just trying to be polite. I didn't know if you wanted me to drop it or set it on the car. So my they hands, do not I, can, take any chances. I put my hands down on the car and I go, what's going on? But this guy was over the top. He grabbed mm-hmm. me by the back of the hair, wrapped my head off the, the yeah. hood. Then well, threw, me, to do that. threw me to the ground. There's uh, this big thicket of uh, bramble and, and oh. everything. Pushes me down on the ground. I go, and I legitimately had a good question here. I go, what the f- is going on? And the boot hit me in the back of the neck. And he said, if you say another word, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. Mm-hmm. And that was it. He said, now put your hands behind your back. I put my hands behind my back. Now, again, I'm a white kid <laughs> in Winona. This isn't like I was some gangbanger. You know, I wasn't in some area that was high crime rate. I couldn't figure out what was going on. But I, I learned at that moment, just shut up and roll with the flow. I was then thrown into the car Uh the other cop came up and he goes, what's going on? I said, I don't have any clue. This guy's kicking the crap out of me for nothing. The cop came back, threw me in the car, and he goes, if you think I'm kicking the crap out of you now, wait till I get you to jail. Mm-hmm. And we got into jail. They processed me, still not telling me what's going on. But as soon as he asked me, so what's your name, son? And I said, Dave Schrader. And what's your birthday? And I give it. And he goes, well, see, if you would have just been uh, willing to talk to me at the site, I go, 
Are you nuts? Yeah. All I did was ask you what happened, and you kicked the hell out of me. Oh, no, no, no. And his sergeants are standing there, and he glared at me like I was dead. I just shut up. Mm-hmm. They ended up processing and letting me out. I had to go to the hospital to get x-rayed. I had a boot mark on my back, a boot mark on my neck. I had abrasions all over from being beat up. It was really, I understand there are good cops out there, and there's a lot of great cops. And unfortunately, like you said earlier, uh, when there's bad cops, there's bad cops. Mm-hmm. This guy, I had no weapon in my hand. I had a can of Coke, and I had no shirt on, so nothing was hidden. I was pretty much out in the open, and I still have no clue what happened to me that night or why I ended up on the hood of a car mm-hmm. and beat up and thrown in jail for an hour. Yeah. Um, they never ended up feeling like they needed to tell me what happened. Yeah. And because I became, quote-unquote, combative, that was enough. Now, there was a case where that was definitely somebody where the badge was overpowering to them they felt that they could do what they wanted when they wanted how they wanted yeah it goes to their head and they get that god complex that they're you know they're the authority and um you know when you think of situations like that it's like you know maybe cops should be trained too not to be so combative if somebody if they are legitimately confused on not knowing what's going on Explain to the person why you are arresting them. See, I'm going to give the police the benefit of the doubt in this case. If you're called in and there's something going on and Mm -hmm. somebody might line up with who you're looking for Mm -hmm. and they're told that this person's aggressive and may be carrying a weapon, I understand swift justice. Yeah. And and the takedown and the need to just assess the, the deal before it explodes. So I do understand that. But that's why I think education of people in communities is paramount, especially in communities where they may be more targeted. Mm-hmm. And now is that, do you think that then would be a sign of racism, Andy, because we want to teach the black community how to respond if a police officer call comes? Yeah, probably would. See, isn't that ridiculous? I, across the board, we should be educated. This is the best way to handle these situations so that it doesn't escalate. Well, a lot of my black friends that I have, um, they've told me that their parents have told them how to act Mm -hmm. around police officers. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of in-family Right, but when you hear things from your mom and dad, a lot of times we dismiss it, right? Maybe by having an educational deal in, in class, in gym class. If you spend one week in PE teaching kids how to respond in a crisis situation... And kind of going over these points, that might start sticking with them. And you do that for one week a year through grade school and high school. That may save lives. That may make all the difference and change the way things are handled. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not I'm not saying I've got the answer, but I've got the answer. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I've always been told since at a young age to respect police officers, uh, firefighters, any you know anybody, especially when it comes to emergency situations. Um, you know, I've never done anything bad really that would <laughs> constitute me getting arrested or anything but um so i've never you been that in... you were caught for no <laughs> i'm a good girl uh-huh. um so i i can't really say because i've never been in that position to say you know i felt like i was um mistreated by a police officer or anything like that so i really feel like i can't you also don't really come off as much of a threat I can That's get true. scrappy. Five feet tall and sixty-two pounds, soaking wet with a wool parka and rocks in your pockets. <laughs> You're not the first one the cops are, but you see a six-foot-one, yeah. buff, two hundred and eighty, you know, two hundred and forty-pound, uh, you know, well-cut, defined young man like I was with flowing hair. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, <laughs> right. That you know. That I can see that there's a need to take control of that situation more. Yes, more but critically. you know. Uh, Maybe you know. I honestly, I think a lot of police officers should go through, um, you know, some psychiatric evaluations like every six months too. Because I mean, a lot of them I think are dealing with kind of like a post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm sure they praise basically all working in, um, you know, like in Minneapolis and stuff with when they're always. It's like they're constantly on edge. So right. like the slightest little but thing. But I wonder, can, if, and I wonder what kind of therapy would actually help with that. Unfortunately. I don't know. I mean, I think it would be best to, just to do evaluations to see where that mental state is in that I think the line then that... becomes if you start micromanaging to that level, what becomes acceptable, right? I, I think, you know, it becomes 
overthought to a degree as well. Mm -hmm. So I can see the the situations. I think you're right. There should be, but then who starts drawing the parameters and definitions of what is acceptable and in what case? Every case seems to be a little bit different than the case before it. Yeah, but I think they have a good, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, police officers usually learn how to, to deal with the stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, they I, they don't try not to bring it home. They try and um, I don't know how they do it, uh, but they try to micromanage their what they deal with on a daily basis. Um, you know, but maybe have an outlet for them to go to to say, you know, look, I'm I'm stressed to the gills I, right now. I think now. you start I, running into problems with that too. That a lot of cops don't want to be that person because mm-hmm. then if there ever is a questionable moment. Mm-hmm. And IAD gets a look at this and says, well, he has been feeling like he's been stressed. Suddenly you start putting yourself under a microscope you maybe don't need to be under. Whereas this was a legitimate accident and they'll they'll investigate it and see this was was not a a willful intent to murder this person. But then you start including, but you know what? Officer uh, Schrader came in twice talking about how stress is getting to them, suddenly they yeah, start second-guessing ex- themselves. They're kind of expected to be seen as, like, robots. Superheroes, yeah, robots. Yeah, they just they... won't be – there's no mistakes. They've mm-hmm. got to make that crucial decision. It's it's a tough and business. That's, I think that's the problem because they're not robots. They're humans, too, and they make mistakes, and they have poor judgment at times, especially in a stressful right, but you situation. See that, you see that by putting yourself in the crosshairs – Mm-hmm. could cause trouble for you down the line that would not have been there for you otherwise. No one wants to admit that people make mistakes. They want right. to say, this person made a mistake, so he's the problem, so let's get rid of him, and, the and police, we'll all be safe forever. Right, the police are held to a higher level of expectations mm-hmm. than anybody else. And that's why I think, you know, if honestly, Andy and, and uh, Cass, if we took these, uh, if we took jurors into a situation and gave them that police training, you have to decide, is Andy holding a remote control or is he holding a revolver Mm -hmm. in this low-light setting? You've just been told that there's a bald white guy with glasses who's been seen strolling the streets with a weapon in his hand. You have two seconds to react. Do you take the shot and chop him? Do you do you take a shot to scare him? Do you what do you do? I wonder how many people that are brought up on the video game culture would make the right choice. Mm. Yeah, true. I Even mean, though it, the situation sucks for everyone, that doesn't mean that it was a wrong call to well, shoot. Right. And also, too, I mean, the media has a responsibility as well to because it seems like as soon as a story breaks that somebody was shot by a police officer, it's a political thing now. Becomes po- yeah. political right away. It becomes racial right away, and um, and then I think that's where the whole situation of facts becomes skewed. I wonder: is there any uh, data or stats on how many black officers shoot black perpetrators in a moment like that? Or do, do they ever talk about that is it? A good question. I wonder if that, you know, in, and in, in, if you put them side by side, how many <clears throat> white police officers are making these crucial choices that the same are being said of, of officers of color, but it's just not a point because they're officers of color. Hmm. Well, and that's the thing. The media, you know, cherry picks what they want to put out there. People will make videos of a situation happening, and we don't know if those videos have been edited in any way. Well, um, and you don't know what led up to that moment. Exactly. All you're seeing is the aftermath of the attack. That one horrible video where the cop is struggling with the guy on the ground, and mm-hmm. the guy's reaching for the gun, and security for the gas station is just walking around filming it, mm-hmm. not helping. You have other people saying, well, I'm not going to help because I don't want to get shot. And But it's it's much safer to sit there videotaping an obvious criminal uh, activity, whether the person is wrong or right, they shouldn't be reaching for the cop's gun. No. And you got to guess that there could be shots fired that could take you out, but these morons are going to stand there with their video cameras and watch this thing unfold yeah, instead I- of helping an officer subdue the the, the perpetrator. Oh, yeah. Um, white officers do not shoot black suspects at a higher rate than non-white officers. So Wait, say that again? Uh, white officers do not kill black suspects at a higher rate than non-white officers so it's so all cops no matter what their race are equally likely to kill a black guy basically and they haven't really gone into whether they're as likely to kill a white guy or an asian guy or whatever but that's not what the media cares about right now so Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter but it gives you something to think about 
That's the reality. That's what's not getting reported. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if, if it was all racism, then you would expect to see a much higher percentage among white officers. But right. You and don't. how often are there black officers shooting people of other color? That, you know, I mean, and I'm not trying to put it on any one race on this, but I'm just saying all stats need to be made known, not mm-hmm. just the one to back your side of the story. Yeah, that that's what needs to be handled. Uh, hey, there's a brand new special that started this last Sunday. It's going to be running for the next four weeks. Josh Gates Expedition Unknown Search for the Afterlife premiered on October 7th at 10 p.m. Eastern. And he is on. He's the on the line. We're going to talk to him when we return. Stay tuned. I'm Dave Schrader, and this is The Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here to tell you, Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers. Come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call our fleet reps right now at 651-748-4477 or visit them online at Priority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry, This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Joining us now, Explorer and host Josh Gates who's taking us beyond the grave in Discovery's four-part special event, Expedition Unknown Search for the Afterlife. You never saw Josh... Indiana Jones go there. No, no. <laughs> well, really, but we've got the new Indiana Jones. We've got the guy that's out there in the world checking this mm-hmm. stuff out now. Gates journeys across the globe to investigate into the spirit world and answer mankind's greatest unsolved mystery. Where do we go when we die? The series began this past October 7th. We'll run for the next four weeks on Discovery Channel. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Hey, great talking to you, man. How are you? I'm doing good. I know you're going to join me tonight on my show, Midnight in the Desert, for an hour. We'll have a little bit of an extended uh, conversation. But i got to tell you, we sat down as a family and watched the first episode of Expedition Unknown Search for the Afterlife. And, man, was that a great series. What a great kickoff to this and that's something that intrigues so many people you guys have you've you've gone out looking for yeti you've gone out searching for proof of extraterrestrial life and now to bring it back home into the realm of of what happens next uh was this a personal journey for you was this something that that you were really intrigued with uh to to delve into it really was you know i mean uh, a lot of folks um, might know that I hosted a show called Destination Truth for a number of years before Expedition Unknown, and that was a show in which we got to play in the paranormal space uh, a lot more than uh, than we have on Expedition Unknown, which right. is a lot more archaeological and legends, things like that. But it's something that's always fascinated me, and uh, as I said at the at the beginning of the show, if, if, if folks had a chance to see it, uh, you know, I turned 40 this year, I have a family now, I got a couple of little ones at home, and so I'm starting to like everybody, you know, think more about, well, what's it all about? And, and, and is there something else out there? You know, and I've, I've been traveling professionally um, for, you know, almost a decade now and going into all these other cultures and seeing in all the different ways in which people uh, deal with death and the question of the afterlife. And so I really wanted to put a show together about it. How backwards is our culture here in the United States regarding death? Uh, you know, from what you're well, finding across the, the board and across the world, it just seems to me in a lot of these cultures are a lot more enlightened and a lot more 
I guess, in touch with the concept of death than we are? I think I think it all depends, obviously, on, on how you look at it or what you believe. I mean, one of the things about the special is it's kind of a powder keg, right, because you're dealing with questions of faith and things like that. But I will say that I think that in the West we are much more closed off about death than other cultures. Uh, I think whether we've got it right or wrong and whatever your you know, religious beliefs might be, you know, the way in which we treat death in our society is it's something we don't really talk about. We try to avoid it. We try to change the topic. Nobody um, really wants to um, talk about their own death or death of family members, things like that. And when someone does die, it's an extremely sad, mournful event. And we bury people and we cremate them and we kind of move on and then don't talk about it again. And, and so, you know, that's not universally true for every person and every family, but it is kind of the way our culture works. Uh, it's just something that we just kind of pretend isn't going to happen, even though it's going to happen to all of us. And so, there are certainly cultures around the world where death is just much more a part of life. And uh, I think that in some ways that can be really healthy because you are just not pretending that this thing isn't going to happen. And we certainly saw that uh, in India, which is in the, um, the uh, second episode of the series coming up. We, we take a trip to India to experience the Hindu um, burning ghats, which is where they burn bodies um, to move them into the Hindu afterlife and into, you know, up into Nirvana. And it's a very open thing. Uh, bodies burned um, on the banks of the River Ganges. It's an extremely intense ritual. It's, uh, as you'll see in the show, it's a really emotional uh, moment for me. I actually uh, kind of could barely get through um, talking to camera because it's just, for me in the West, it's just I've never seen something like this before. You know, it's really intense. But for the people there, it's a part of life. It's a part of their world. And... You know, it's interesting to me how many of these cultures celebrate death as just an extension of where we are and that they honor their dead in ways, as you said, we almost kind of just uh, push it under the carpet and forget. Um, and, and these other cultures, as you expose in, in, I'm not giving anything away because it's in the previews, there are cultures that live with the dead or they'll bring the dead out once a year to redress them and celebrate mm -hmm. through a meal with them they and then re-intern them. It's like a South American country that does that. I think they like bring them out and dress there, them yeah, up. There's, yeah. There's, there's, there's even places around the world that do it. We went to Indonesia where they, there's a, a tribe called the Taraja and this is a big thing for them. One of their, their beliefs that's very different than ours is that they believe that when a person dies, the spirit doesn't leave the body. You know, most cultures believe that the spirit goes somewhere else. Well, the Taraja believe that the spirit stays in that body, and so they don't want to get rid of that body, uh, and they will uh, bring it into their home. And so we went to a Tarajan village and went to homes, and there are dead people in their houses. And uh, we went and met with a family, and you'll, you'll see this in the show, uh, that have their, their parents in the house. And they are just, like, living with these dead folks, and there's, like, little kids running around, and it's like, oh, there's, there's grandma and grandpa. And it's, like, completely normal to them. So, you know, to me, like, my mouth is hanging open. It's like I just walked into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre dinner. Right. And, um, <laughs> House of a Thousand them, Corpses, right. Like, and, and to them, this is, this is just grandma and grandpa, you know? And, and there's something completely natural and normal about it. And after about 10 minutes of being in there, you sort of, I don't know, it kind of drops away. And you're like, yeah, okay, these are just, you know, two dead people there. And... But but it is like a you know for us it's like shocking when you when you first see things like this. Do they still incorporate them in their life? Or do they speak to them? Do they pay honor to them on a regular basis? What's it like in these cultures yeah, when they, they honor the dead? They 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 bring them offerings. They bring them food. They bring them uh, cigarettes. Uh, they talk to them. They just sort of treat them like they're still there. They actually think of them more like sick people um, who need to be tended to. And then eventually they do hold these really elaborate funerals for them after a certain time. But there's a period where they're kind of not ready to let go. And so having them there in their homes is this transitionary period before they send their spirits off to the next place uh, in, this, in this huge funeral ceremony. But, you know, to us this is really different. And this is really what the series is all about. It's about looking at the question of the afterlife and looking at the question of death in places where it's very different than what we're used to. Um, not so much as a way of deciding what's right, but as a way of just sort of 
saying, look, everybody's dealing with this inevitable thing in, in really different, interesting ways. And, and by the way, is there evidence that we can tap into that, that shows that there is something out there? I also want to mention to people that after each new episode, there's Expedition Unknown after the search, which takes us to Expedition Unknown headquarters. And Josh is there as he leads kind of a detailed discussion uh, with his his fearless crew and, and, and a special guest and special guest experts to kind of delve a little bit deeper into the subjects that they explored in the in the episode of Expedition Unknown Search for the Afterlife you just watched. As well as kind of you, you show some never be sort, never seen before footage, behind the scene moments, and those I think are great because it's a good insight into the show. And unfortunately, when you have to put together a package for fifty minutes or fifty two minutes, there's some really interesting elements that get left out. And I, I really appreciate the way you guys tackle that in the uh, after the search episode as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, we, we spent over a month going around the world filming this show, and we have a ton of footage. And, you know, sometimes you make a show, and, and you, you look at the editing room floor, and you're like, man, there's not much down there. It's just scraps and, you know, stuff that I really didn't want to put in the show. In this case, there's amazing material that didn't make it into the mainline show uh, just because of how much we filmed. And, and there's also scenes that just kind of, I think, warrant a little more discussion of, of you know, what... Um, what really was it like to be in this place or, or what were the locals doing and, and just sort of delving into some of the questions of, of what else was going on uh, while, the, while the cameras were rolling. So it's an awesome opportunity to take a kind of a deeper dive into the topic. And we have some special guests in there uh, to help uh, bring some insights into it as well. I know just uh, to name drop a little bit, uh, psychic medium Chip Coffee from Paranormal State, Psychic Kids, he's a part of uh, an episode or two. You've got Grant Wilson from the hit sci-fi TV series Ghost Hunters, Amy Bruni, Adam Barry from Ghost Hunters and Ghost Hunters International. They're all a part of this and, and helping you explore these different facets. And I've been lucky enough uh, over the last 10 years uh, to become friends with you at these different paranormal conferences. And you, you take a great stance. You're a lot like me in the sense that you're, you're intrigued by it, but you have a very skeptical nature. You're much more scully to my molder when we hang out and, and listen to these different presentations. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate your insights when we do this and we have a chance to talk. You had a chance to sit before Chip Coffee for the first time for a reading. And this is, you know, you and I have witnessed these things at conventions and witnessed them time and time again. But is how different is it when all of a sudden a connection is made for you and you're no longer watching somebody read somebody in the third row behind you and you have no way to corroborate what's coming out when it gets focused to you. Did, was that a paradigm changer for you, Josh? You know, it kind of was. And I, I, sh I should point out that the first episode in the series is going to re-air tonight uh, at 11 p.m. If anybody's around, it'll be on Discovery tonight and it can also be downloaded on discovery.com if anyone hasn't seen it. But in this first episode, we have this scene with Chip Coffee. You know Chip Coffee. I know Chip Coffee. I've been to a bunch of these events where Chip um, has appeared, and I've become friends with him through that. And But I've never really seen Chip work all that much. I think I've only ever watched in the back of a room once when he did a gallery reading for people. Chip's a very well-known psychic, if, if, if folks don't know who he is. And uh, I kind of seen him do his thing once, and, and I was really impressed by it when I saw it. I kind of, you know, like... Anytime you see a really successful psychic reading, your brain kind of explodes and you go, what's really going on here? But to sit in a gallery and not just watch him do his thing, which is incredible in and of itself, because he's so confident and he, and he just turns to people and he tells them to stand up and he just delivers stuff to them that just punches them in the gut. And I'm sitting there really enjoying it because it's just so cool. And then suddenly, and it was really, you know, I had said to Chip before we came, I said, don't feel like you have to do anything to me. You know, like, I'm here to document what you do. Um, and he turns to me and says, I got some stuff I want to say to you. And that's kind of part of where we broke the first episode there um, into the second episode for next week. But Chip completely floored me. Uh, he said stuff to me. Um, we, we talked about it a bit in the after show of the, of the first episode, so I'm not really giving anything away. But he had this message for me that appeared to be from my aunt who had just passed away. And I didn't tell anybody that my aunt had died. I didn't tell my crew. Um, I was really bummed out, and it had just happened. And we were trying to you know, get through a whole bunch of shoots for the Afterlife show. So she was really on my mind, but I just didn't really talk about it. It was a sort of private thing. And 
And Chip just seemed to completely tap into her. And it was just like, this is impossible. Like, nobody knows about this. Nobody, this hasn't been written about. There isn't an obituary floating around. Like, Chip just seemed to be, like, channeling her. And it just completely floored me. And uh, you'll see more of it in the second episode. And it, I mean, I was crying. I mean, it really was just like, well, I'm left now completely flummoxed. Like, I don't know what to think. Are you, does that excite you about doing this kind of work that even when you think you've got a handle on, on certain aspects of it, you still find that there are different aspects of, of our world around us that you, you thought you understood and are still just opening up to you at this point in your life? Totally. You know, and, and I think it's the reason that I still travel and the reason that I still love the work is that sometimes, not every day, you know, but sometimes it really challenges you. And there were a number of moments on this four-part special that really challenged me. One was with Chip because I just couldn't understand how he did it. Uh, in the second episode, when we traveled to India, being there on site for the burning of these bodies on the Ganges was, you know, just kind of mind-altering in the sense that it just really made me see this experience of literally watching a person deconstruct in front of you. Um, you know, not a movie, not a right. special effect, just seeing it for real is, is, um, I mean, traumatic in a sense, but also kind of astonishing oh, and enlightening, really right? powerful. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's just, you just see that we're like everything else. We're like everything else. We're like every other thing in the world. We decompose, we fall apart. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Seeing that was really powerful. And in the final episode, we, uh, I took a trip down to the Amazon and uh, experienced ayahuasca, which is uh, the most powerful hallucinogen on the planet. Uh, that was definitely, for me, a really uh, kind of out-of-my-comfort-zone experience. Right. Um, it's meant to connect you with the spirit world. And for me, it was a really, um, it actually was, I, I, I would say, a religious experience. It was a life-changing experience for me. I just was really challenged by it. It was not necessarily enjoyable, um, but it was. Um, it really made me think a lot differently about, about the world. Well, Expedition Unknown, Search for the Afterlife. It starts uh, last Sunday, October 7th. It'll be running through the course of October, so make sure you check it out on, on uh, Discovery Channel. And you can check out Josh tonight for an extended interview at midnightinthedesert.com with me, Dave Schrader. Stay tuned. There's more of the Tom Bernard Show right after this.